Um, I have asked Roy if he would come and read um, our text to us this morning. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking out of Luke 15, so I'm going to have him come and read the entire chapter to us, and then he'll pray, and then I'll share. So, Roy, if you want to come on up. Good morning. Turn with me to Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine, or the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. 
He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Lord, we're just so grateful for these parables, Lord. Um, how they just they give us hope. They just they reveal to reveal to us your compassion. Um, Lord, we just we couldn't ask for anything else. Lord, we couldn't ask for a more merciful, graceful, compassionate God. Father, I pray that as as your words brought forth this morning, um, that it be brought forth in power. That you would. Um, that you would uh, use this word to touch our hearts um, that you've laid on David's heart to bring to us, that we leave changed and convicted and um, and just um, even more grateful, Lord, of what you've done in our lives. And I ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, um, Lord willing, this morning I want to look over this chapter. We won't be going verse by verse, but just kind of hit some of the highlights, although I do plan on obviously going a little more in depth into part of the story of the prodigal son. But just by way of introduction, um, verses 1 and 2 here give us uh, the purpose of this parable. Um, The parable was directed towards the Pharisees and the scribes. And you see that in verse 3 where he says, he told them, uh, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, this parable. So why was it that Jesus is telling this parable to them? Well, it's because they were grumbling about Jesus receiving sinners and tax collectors and eating with them. So what was it about Jesus' receiving these sinners that caused the Pharisees and the scribes so much grief? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes were so heavy on the externals, the external actions, but they were empty on inward heart realities. They were religious about keeping the external law, and their own traditions, but they had no place in their calculated external religion for grace 
and for mercy. And to them, eating with tax collectors and sinners was nothing more than a violation of an outward external law. They had cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside they were full of robbery and wickedness. That's from Luke 11. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you see, outwardly the Pharisees had it all together. And they could see that eating with tax collectors and sinners was a violation in some way. But inside, there was nothing there. There was no reality. There was no love. There was nothing of God in their hearts. And so when these religious but spiritually dead Pharisees and scribes saw Jesus interacting with the tax collectors and sinners, they grumbled. They grumbled in their heart. Now, I was thinking about this, that at first glance, their response is similar, and I say similar, to the brethren's response to Peter going to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. You remember, Peter went to the Gentiles, the Spirit is poured out upon them, Peter returns and reports to the brethren in Jerusalem, and this is what it says in Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So in a sense, that sounds kind of similar to what the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling about. You're entertaining uncircumcised, or you're entertaining sinners here. They stumbled over the fact that a ceremonial law had been broken. Peter went and ate with uncircumcised men. But notice the the difference, though, the response of the brethren after Peter tells the story of what happened. So I'm skipping over a large section in Acts 11, but in Acts 11.18 says this, When they heard this, when they heard Peter's report, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So you see the difference there. Their response was to rejoice and glorify God for showing mercy to the Gentiles. And that response is completely different um, from the scribes and the Pharisees here in Luke 15. They see what Jesus is doing and there's no sense of glorifying God. Instead, they just grumble in their hearts over the fact that he is showing mercy and grace to these sinners. So Jesus tells them this parable. That sets a stage then for this parable. Notice it doesn't say in um, verse 3 that he told them these parables, plural. It's singular. He told them this parable. One parable told through three different stories but all of them having the same theme. And the theme is something is lost, and when it is found, there is great joy and rejoicing. In the first parable, and we're not going to reread it, but in the first parable, there are a hundred sheep, and one of them is lost. In the second story, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, (laughs) it's not the first parable. In the first story of the parable, a hundred sheep, and one of them is lost. In the second story, 
There are ten coins, and one of them is lost. And in the last story, there are two sons, and one of them is lost. So what is the point of this parable as told in these three different stories? And Jesus plainly gives us the answer to that in verses 7 and 11. So verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the, the point, the theme of this story is there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. A single sinner brings joy in heaven. It doesn't say there is joy in heaven when 3,000 sinners repent, like on the day of Pentecost, although that is true, but that's not what this parable is teaching. No, there is joy in heaven over one, one sinner who repents. And this shows us the immense value of a single soul. Sinner, your soul is very valuable. When just a single sinner repents, There is joy and rejoicing in heaven. So that is the basic theme or point of this parable, but I want to dig in a little deeper. And with the rest of the time, I want to consider the three characters in the story of the prodigal son. First being the prodigal son himself, and second the father, and third and last the older brother. Um, I'll going to spend the majority of the time on the prodigal son, a little less time on the father, and the least amount of time on the older brother. And I hope to share some thoughts and bring out some spiritual applications from the text regarding each of these characters. So, beginning with the prodigal son, notice first of all here in verse 12, the boldness, and you might even say the arrogance, of the younger son when he demands his share of the inheritance there in verse 12. This was highly uh, unusual demand. And really, in many ways, we would say it would even be an unusual demand today for a son or a daughter to go to their parents and say, you know, I'm ready for my inheritance now. Go ahead and give it to me now. You know, that is done after the parents have passed away, not before. So he basically is saying, Father, I know you have not died yet, but I simply cannot wait that long to receive my share of the inheritance. Give it to me now. Even though you're still living, I want it now. So there's, just digging in a little bit here, there's no love or respect for the father in this demand. It is driven by the son's selfish desires. He wants the inheritance and he wants it now, to spend however he wants now. Which brings the first point that I want to bring out from this. When self is on the throne, it demeans and devalues those around us. You cannot love others as you ought to when self is on the throne. And I think that's what we're seeing here, a little picture of this with the son. Self is on the throne, and how does it 
affect him. He goes out and demands something of his father. No love, no respect for the father. He wants it, and he wants it now. This is a rough quote from Paul David Tripp, which I've gotten from some of his teaching and some of his books. He says this, Other people will be a means to satisfy your selfish desires, or they will be an obstacle in the way of your selfish desires. When self is on the throne, you view everybody around you as either a means to get what you want or an obstacle in the way of what you want. In other words, there's no respect and no love for the other person. It's just you're helping me get what I want or you're in the way of getting what I want. Well, second, uh, notice in verse 13 what he does with his portion of the estate here in verse 13. It says he spent it all on loose living. He lived the life of pleasure and luxury for a short while, but as we know from the story, it came to an end. So this brings up the second point. Sin may have pleasure, but it is only brief and passing. And it made me think of Hebrews 11:25 speaking of Moses, it says this, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible doesn't disregard the fact that there's pleasure in sin, but it highlights this very important fact. It's a passing pleasure and it does come to an end. The younger son had a lot of money and he lived it up for a short while. I can imagine it was lots of parties, lots of wine, and lots of lustful pleasures. It was essentially everything that the world had to offer for a brief time. Sin may be fun, but it doesn't last. It soon passes, and this is a certainty. The pleasures of sin will not last they will certainly come to an end. So, again, to the unbeliever here, if you're holding on to sin because you can't stand to let it go, it's too much, you know, means too much to you, it's too much pleasure, too much enjoyment, it's going to come to an end. Eventually, it will. If not in this life, certainly in the next life. Well, this leads then to the next point in verses 14 through 16. Notice the results after the pleasures of sin have passed. He became impoverished and was brought so low that he envied the swine because they at least had something to eat. This is incredible. Here he had been living it up, eating whatever he wanted, probably the best that that region had to offer, and now he has nothing, absolutely nothing. Which brings up this point. You are always worse off because of sin. Sin never results in a better outcome. It's always a worse outcome. Think of how far he fell and how fast it happened. He was living in luxury one moment. And the next moment he was so hungry and desperate that he longed for the food that the pigs were eating. He longed for the food that the pigs were eating, and yet just days before, or however long before, 
He was eating the life of luxury. Well, the turning point in his life begins in verse 17, and it says this, he came to his senses, when he came to his senses. So what happened here? Well, reading the rest of the New Testament into this passage or into this story, I think we can say this, God came to him and opened his eyes to spiritual reality. He began to see things as they really were. There was certainly action on his part. You know, he humbled himself and he went and confessed to his father, and we'll see that here in just a minute in verses 18 and 19. But it begins with God opening his eyes. It says he came to his senses. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what happens when God comes in is that he opens blind eyes and they begin to see. They begin to see spiritual reality. They begin to see their sin. They begin to see something of the glory of Christ. And that is what is happening here for this younger son. He's beginning to see reality. He's beginning to see the depth of his sin and his need. And what does that do? It brings him to repentance, to true repentance. Just a little side note here. We can probably all testify that God uses trials in our life to bring us to himself. And in this case, for this prodigal son, it was the famine and the loss of his income that brought the son to this low point. But it was through this trial that he came to his senses and returned to his father. It's while he is literally in the mire there, feeding pigs and longing for the food of pigs, that the Lord opens his eyes and he sees. Well, what would have happened if he would have continued to have an endless supply of money and food? I believe he would have been distracted with the cares and pleasures of this life and would have given no thought to returning to his father. So you see, it's through the trial, the very trial that brings a person to their point of need and desperation, like my dad was sharing earlier, crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And that's what, in a sense, what this prodigal son is doing here, crying out from his point of despair, and the Lord does have mercy on him. Well, moving on now, notice his response to coming to his senses. And this is in verses 18 and 19. It says, he humbled himself and he resolved, this is my words, that he resolved to go repent before his father. He made a commitment, I will go to my father and I will say to him. And so there are some characteristics of true repentance that are seen here in these two verses, verses 18 and 19, that I want to highlight. But I do want to say this. This is not a complete analysis of true repentance, but I do believe that these characteristics are present here in this text, and so I just want to highlight these. The first is the prodigal son sees his sin first against God. It says here in verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven. 
If there is not a realization that your sin is first and foremost against God, then it is not true repentance. Remember what David said there in Psalm 51 after his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba and ultimately the murder of her husband, Uriah. It says this, Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David saw that his sin was against God, ultimately against God. Now there was probably a long list of people that he had sinned against, that David had sinned against. I mean, think about it. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his own wives by committing adultery. He sinned against his children. And in a sense, he sinned against the entire nation of Israel. He was the king of Israel. And yet he says, against you and you only, I have sinned. Why does he say that? Because he saw that his sin, although it is true, was committed against others, was ultimately against God. He had violated commands of God. He had broken the covenant with God. He had ultimately offended God. David offended the God of heaven, and that is who he first repents to. And the same is true here for the younger son. He sinned against heaven, against the God of heaven, and he confesses that. But then second, notice, he says, uh, he sees, rather, his sin against his father. says, I've sinned against heaven and um, in your sight. He doesn't stop with just, I've sinned against God. True, he has sinned against God. But he goes on to confess and repent before the person that he's offended, or persons, if there were more than one. And so this is the second point. Brethren, if you've never seen that you've sinned against others, then you've never truly seen your sin. Our sin, yes, is against God, but we also sin against one another. And if we've never seen that, then we've never truly seen our sin. Now, I do want to be careful here to say that we don't see all of our sin all at once. There may be ones we've sinned against that the Lord brings to our mind down the road a little bit. It's not all at once. But the point is, do you see that you've sinned against others, and are you seeking to confess and repent before the ones that you do know of? That is a mark of true repentance. Well, then the third point of repentance here is that the younger son humbled himself and made no demands of his sonship. Think about this. He left demanding his inheritance, claiming his sonship. You know, the servants don't come up to the master and say, give me my inheritance. They have no inheritance. That's only for the son or for the child, the offspring. So he's demanding his inheritance, claiming his sonship. When he returns, he confesses his unworthiness to even be called a son. You see the the fact of his taking this posture of complete humility. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. That is humility. He recognized that being allowed to be a servant to his father would be a merciful thing. The father would be showing mercy to allow him to return even just as a servant. So true repentance comes with no demands. 
Rather, it comes in humility, taking the low position, seeking the low position. Those were three points that I saw, anyway, in these two verses. And again, not a complete analysis of true repentance, but I think some points that could be brought out here from these verses. Well, before we move on to talk about the Father, I wanted to bring out a contrast here that um, in order to do so, we need to read between the lines a little bit and imagine what is going on in this story. And I, I asked my wife this ahead of time just to make sure I was thinking in the same way as others. Um, but think about this. When the son departed, what emotions do you think were going on in his heart and in the heart of his father? You don't need to answer that, but just think about it. The son is departing, leaving, claiming this inheritance and leaving. What emotions are going on in the heart of the son And what emotions are going on in the heart of the father? Well, I would imagine that the son was filled with gladness and excitement over his newfound wealth and the anticipation of how he was going to spend that. You know, just the world before me and I can do whatever I want. Freedom. I'm out from under this oppressive regime of my wealthy father and I am going out to spend it however I please. I imagine the father, though, was grieved and brokenhearted over the son's departure. And more than just the departure, he was grieved at the state of his son's heart. You know, I'm sure any time a son or a child leaves home, it's a, it's a grief to the parents, but how much more when their heart is not right. But think now about the emotions, and I think we see this a little clearer of in in the text think of the emotions of the son and the father as they reunite as they come back together the son who left with joy and gladness of heart returns with what humility and mourning grieving over his sin he is truly broken now And it made me think of the first two Beatitudes there in the Sermon on the Mount where it says, the first one, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this idea of poor in spirit? This idea of humility, right? Not claiming, you know, I deserve this, but poor in spirit, thinking little of yourself, taking the humble place. And then the second Beatitude, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So here the son returns in humility and mourning. But then um, think of, notice the emotions of the father. The father, and again, I, I know I'm reading into this a little bit, but the father felt sadness and grief at the departure of his son and at the hardness of his son's heart. But when he returned, what? He's filled with joy. He ran to meet him. He called for a celebration. What an incredible thing. What, a, what an amazing contrast. Here, the one departs with joy, returns with sadness. The father watches him leave in sadness and receives him back with great joy. Well, I want to move on then and consider the father. And as we consider 
some thoughts regarding the father in this story, I want to begin by bringing out an important detail. And that is the father in this story is God. Don't miss that point. Jesus is telling us about our heavenly father. He is giving us a glimpse into the very heart of God. So as we look at uh, the response of the father in this story, I'm going to be applying it to God himself. Now, aside from a brief mention of the father at the beginning of the story in verse 12, uh, the first we hear from the father is in verse 20 and following. And it says this uh, in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, reading this, I get the feeling that the father was waiting for him and looking for his return because he sees him from a distance. It's not as though, you know, the son comes and knocks on the gate and then he sees him there, but he sees him from a far distance. It's like he, he's, while he's out doing his work, he's keeping his eyes on the horizon waiting for his son to return. Well, he sees him from a distance He feels compassion for him, and he runs and embraces him and kisses him. So all doubt and all wondering about how the father would respond to the son is immediately put to rest. Think about this. Before the son can even get the words out of his mouth, before he can even confess to his father, the father has already run to him and warmly embraced him and kissed him. It's amazing. Brethren, the Lord runs to meet those that come to him in humility. Before you can even voice your confession of sin, God is pouring his love upon you. There is no greater sign of affection than an embrace and a kiss. And that's the very first thing that the father leads out with. It's like he doesn't hold back the best for later and just give him a little sample. He leads out with the very best. He embraces him and kisses him. No holding back. No waiting to see what the son is going to say. He lavished his love upon the returning son. The son then confesses to his father. You know, he resolved that he was going to go to his father and repent and confess, and he does that. He follows through and says exactly what he intended to say. But notice what the father does not say. This is not what the father says. You did what with the inheritance? Go to your room. Let me think about your punishment. There's none of that. The father does exactly the opposite. Instead of bringing, or rather, instead of shaming the son for his sin, he calls for the best robe, a ring, and sandals for his feet. He showers more love and more grace upon him. He's already warmly embraced him and kissed him and welcomed him back, and now he pours more love upon him. The son came asking to be accepted or received as a servant to the father. But the father treats him as an honored son. The best robe, a ring, a sandal, what is that? That's honor, that's dignity, 
That's showing respect and honor to this son. Like, look at my son, the best robe, a ring on his finger and sandals. They're symbols of honor and dignity. So that brings up this question. What then did the son do to deserve this? What did he do? Nothing. He did nothing to deserve this. In fact, what he did warranted disgrace and banishment. He disgraced his father. He should have been kicked out, excluded. You're no longer welcome here. But the father lavished love, mercy, and grace upon him. Brethren, this is our God. What did we do to deserve such love, such honor, and such grace? Nothing. We deserve banishment from God's presence. We deserve his wrath. We deserve hell. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. That's what God has done for us in Christ. We don't deserve any of that. It's grace, and he pours it out. He lavishes it upon us. It made me think of that verse in uh, 1 John 3, 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version here. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Think of that. What, what kind of love is it, the great love of God, that we are called children of God? And you see that here in this passage. The love of the Father to receive him back as a son, an honored son, after the way he had disgraced his father. I like how the NIV translates 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I think that gets the point across. Lavish, pouring it out upon us. The fact that we are called children of God is one of the greatest manifestations of his love for us. We are the ones who he has placed the best robe on, a ring on our finger and sandals on our feet. Again, what grace, what mercy, and what love. Notice finally about the father here. He calls for a celebration. And this brings us back to the beginning where I talked about the theme of this parable as told through these three stories. And that is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now in the first story, the lost sheep, it says in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It says heaven. It doesn't specify who in heaven is doing the rejoicing. It just says in heaven there will be rejoicing. In the next story, the lost coin, it says this in verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now we're getting somewhere. We're kind of getting a little clearer picture. The angels are rejoicing. So, okay, whenever a sinner repents, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. These same angels that came down and worshipped Christ 
when he was born there in Bethlehem. Those angels are rejoicing in heaven whenever a sinner repents. But then here in this last parable, this last story, the prodigal son, the, um, the father himself calls for the celebration. God himself rejoices when a sinner repents. God calls for the celebration and God enters into the celebration. And look at this, and I'm going to read here. This is from the father's perspective. So the father is the one who's speaking here, and listen to his words. Verse 23, let us eat and celebrate. He's including himself in that. Verse 24, and they began to celebrate. Who's the they? The father and everybody there. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 32 says, again, the father speaking, we had to celebrate and rejoice. The father initiates the celebration, and the father enters right into the celebration. This is our God. Do we think of him in this way? God himself rejoicing whenever a sinner repents. And I, I didn't quote any from the book, Gentle and Lowly, but really um, a lot of this is woven throughout that entire book of just encouraging us to dig into what is the heart of God like. And it's love, love for us. And we oftentimes think of God in this cold and calculated way. Yes, he loves me enough to save me, but he doesn't love me enough to welcome me in. But look at the story here. The father runs and embraces him, lavishes that love upon him. Um, There's a song uh, that was on the radio back in the 80s or 90s um, called When God Ran. And then uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean redid that song maybe 15, 20 years ago, basically telling the story um, from the prodigal son's perspective, thinking but applying it to God himself. You've got almighty God running to embrace, running to welcome a, a sinner, a sinner who comes to him and embracing him and kissing him. If you want to hear that song, I'm sure you can find it online somewhere. It's called When God Ran. Well, um, the story doesn't end there. Um, we're introduced uh, to the third character in the story, the older brother. So as we look at this, we need to remember who Jesus is talking to when he tells this parable. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And I brought some of this out already at the beginning here. The scribes and the Pharisees were experts in the law, but they were completely ignorant of what was at the heart of the law, love for God and love for neighbor. You know, Jesus says that on these two laws hang or depend all the law and the prophets. Well, they had every jot and tittle down, but they had neglected the greater, the weightier things, love and mercy. These are the ones, these Pharisees and scribes are the ones who, when seeing a sinner, which we later find out is Mary, worship the Lord by pouring perfume on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair, and kissing his feet. 
Instead of marveling at the goodness of God to forgive and change a notorious sinner, they grumbled because he was allowing a sinner to touch him. You know, that the host there said if, if this was a prophet, he would know what kind of a person this was, that she's a sinner. It's like he's grumbling at the fact that this sinner is coming and worshiping the Lord. That's taken from Luke 7, and also it's in the other Gospels as well. Well, the end of this story of the prodigal son is directed back to the hearers, the scribes and the Pharisees. This older brother in in our story here of the prodigal son, this older brother should have rejoiced with his father that the prodigal son had returned. But instead of rejoicing, he became angry. So a couple thoughts here about his response. First one, a heart that has never experienced grace and forgiveness from God cannot offer grace and forgiveness to others, nor can it rejoice when grace and forgiveness are granted to others. If you've never experienced something of the love of God in your own heart, you can't rejoice when the love of God is poured out to someone else. It actually creates just the opposite. It creates jealousy, envy, bitterness, anger when love and forgiveness is poured out upon someone else. Or put another way, a heart that is filled with self-righteousness has no room for grace. And that's what we'll see here with this older brother, filled with self-righteousness but no grace. And you see the self-righteous attitude in the older brother in verse 29. He is quick to point out all of his faithfulness and obedience to his father. Look what it says here. It says this, he, that is the, the older son, the older brother, answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. See what he's claiming here? I have served you perfectly with perfect obedience. Never disobeyed a command. In other words, patting himself on the back. Look at all that I've done perfectly. Well, this self-righteousness gets ugly when it encounters someone else receiving unmerited favor. Which, what is unmerited favor? Grace. Because in the mind of the self-righteous, everything is merited or earned. I do this good deed, I get this good blessing. That's that's how the self-righteous operates. I've done something, I get something. They don't like it whenever someone doesn't do something but receives the blessing because that's not fair. I'm trying to do right so that I can receive blessing. That's self-righteousness. And it is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came and did all the good deeds and then died for wretched sinners like me. And because of his perfect righteousness and his sacrificial death on my behalf, I can now be brought in as a child of God and given all the blessings of Christ. Not because of anything I've done, But because of what God has done for me in Christ, I can be brought in with zero merit. I can be brought in and lavished with 
the righteousness of Christ, the love of God poured out for me. No works, nothing earned, all grace. That's the gospel. Well, can a self-righteous person be saved? Can there be rejoicing in heaven over a Pharisee who repents? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Think of the transformation of Paul. He was a leading man among the Pharisees. Think about this. And he said, as to the law of Pharisee, or wait, is it as to the law blameless? I think he also, so he claims like that law in the Pharisees, read through the Old Testament. Think about all those laws. And Paul's saying, blameless. I did them all. I did everything. So here's self-righteous Pharisee Paul. And what does he say in 1 Timothy 1.15? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You would expect a Pharisee to say, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, but, you know, I've earned my righteousness. No, this is Paul seeing his need and saying, I'm the worst, I'm the foremost of all sinners. Paul, the former self-righteous Pharisee, saying he is the worst sinner of all. How is that possible? Well, gets back to our point about the prodigal. His eyes were open to see his sin. Lost person, if you can't see your sin, but you're hearing me today, ask the Lord to open your eyes. Ask the Lord to grant you to come to your senses, like it says here about the prodigal. And as you begin to see your sin, do just like the prodigal did. Humble yourself. Go to the Father and confess your sin. That's exactly what he did. Humbles himself, resolves to go to his Father, and when he sees him, he confesses his sin to the Father. And if you do that, you too will be the recipient of grace mercy, and love lavished upon you. And there will be a celebration in heaven over another sinner who repents. Well, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. Lord, we confess that our sin is far greater than what this prodigal son did. Um, And Lord, you've lavished all the same mercy and grace upon us. Lord, we thank you for how you love us. Lord, we thank you that your love is not dependent upon our performance Um, or upon what we can do for you, but your love for us is dependent upon who you are, and you are a God of love. Lord, thank you for the great mercy that you've shown to us, and Lord, I do pray that there might be more here that would see their sin and would come to you confessing their sin. Lord, that there would be more celebration. Lord, more sinners coming to repentance, joy and rejoicing in heaven. Lord, we 
thank you for this time. Just pray for your mercy and grace to be upon us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.